When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, good morning, everyone. We start with some really serious news this morning. There is devastation happening. The staggering death toll keeps rising in Turkey and Syria after a catastrophic earthquake. More than 1,300 people are now reported dead in a powerful aftershock. It just hit just moments ago. We're going to go live to Istanbul for the latest on this fantastic search, a frantic search, I should say, for survivors. Plus, this morning, there's new fallout from the downing of a Chinese spy balloon over the United States, all as President Biden is preparing to deliver his second State of the Union address. And a train loaded with, ha- with hazardous materials derailing in Ohio. Thousands of people ordered to evacuate, and now a desperate battle is underway to keep that toxic wreckage from exploding. We are going to begin with this. So that devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria, it struck before dawn and collapsed buildings while people were asleep in their beds. And just moments ago, we just got word of a powerful 7.5 magnitude aftershock there. You can see people digging through the rubble. More than 1,300 people now reported dead. And there's fear the death toll could potentially climb into the tens of thousands. Right now, this desperate search underway for survivors trapped under giant piles of concrete. Dramatic video showing rescuers pulling a bloody toddler out of rubble in northwest Syria. This is an area already traumatized and ravaged by the bloody and horrific civil war. Here's the moment one child was rescued from that rubble. We want to get the latest now. Jamana Karachka is tracking the latest developments from Istanbul. Jamana, good morning to you. What do we know this hour? Don, absolutely devastating major earthquake, as you mentioned, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake that struck essentially in the middle of the night at about four o'clock in the morning while people were indoors, in bed. It was so powerful that it was felt across the region in different countries, including Lebanon, Israel, Jordan. Uh, And as you mentioned, it was so powerful that we are looking now at these major aftershocks that have followed uh, at least 30 so far reported the strongest just in the past half hour, a 7.5 magnitude. Authorities are urging people to stay away from from uh, structures, uh, as we heard from the uh, Turkish president, nearly a thousand people have been uh, confirmed killed in Turkey. Thousands others injured. There's fear for so many others who are uh, potentially trapped underneath the, uh, the rubble. I mean, we're talking about uh, an area, Don, that stretches across southern Turkey, 10 provinces at least, and across the border into northwestern Syria as well. So many cities and towns devastated in both these countries. More than 
1,300 people confirmed killed in both Turkey and Syria. And this frantic rescue effort is ongoing right now. Of course, a race against time uh, with only a few hours of daylight left. You, I mean, you can just see, it's obvious, the danger there. So one has to wonder, how do, how do officials even begin to these rescue efforts under such conditions? Well, look, Don, you've got these two simultaneous disasters that uh, this region is dealing with right now. What is happening here in Turkey, in a country that is very experienced in dealing with natural disaster. It has a history of devastating earthquakes, tens of thousands of people who have been uh, killed in major earthquakes over the years. Uh, the last one, according to President Erdogan, this is the first major uh, disaster on the level of the last one seen in 1939. But you have the capabilities here and at the same time, Turkish officials are declaring this a level four emergency, which means they have requested international support and international support is coming. You've got the NATO, the EU, uh, 45 countries, according to President Erdogan, that have offered to help. You've got Turkish uh, search and rescue teams that are very experienced in dealing with this, who have been deployed to the earthquake zone. You've got the military that has also been deployed. The biggest concern right now, of course, you've got Many challenges they're facing, including the weather. There's uh, a winter storm, a severe winter storm that is impacting uh, the, uh, that part of the country uh, right now and also trying to reach these areas with many uh, different uh, um, airports also impacted in the region. And a lot of concern, Don, I must mention, for Syria, a country where services and infrastructure is decimated by more than a decade of war. They really don't have the capabilities to deal with this right now. You see rescue workers on the scene. Arjumana Karacha is reporting this. She's in Istanbul. We'll check back with you on this very deadly earthquake next hour. So let's go to our meteorologist, Chad Myers, to talk about what was just recorded, Chad, and that is the aftershock, uh, the original quake 7.8. This aftershock, huge, 7.5 magnitude. An earthquake in itself yeah. would have been the strongest earthquake since 1999 in the region. Now, we always talk about the epicenter, but we really, in this case, we should talk about the EPA line. Here's the original 7.8. Here's the new 7.5. About 100 miles from one side to the other, this earth slipped. And this earth slipped in what we call a strike slip, where the plates are touching and all of a sudden they slide sideways. So the initial, the primary movement is the building moving sideways and then moving back. Unlike when we have the ring of fire where we have the subduction plates and sometimes plates will go up and plates will go down causing the tsunamis, this is more of a sliding back and forth. Why that matters is because the buildings don't want to go back and forth. And then the secondary waves can begin to go up and down as well. There is the strike where the heaviest damage will be right now from the initial, from the initial quake. The new quake is far enough away from the first quake, about 60 miles, that we will see more damage in other areas as well. Two plates collide here. This is uh, one of the areas that we expect this type of scenario. It hasn't happened in a long time, especially not a 7.8. And we talked about the weather, the reporter just did, about how this very, very cold. Temperatures around 40. We yeah. will see snow in the forecast, especially where the new earthquake was. It's a much higher elevation, almost 2,000 feet higher in elevation than where the original quake was. This will be a very difficult, long, and tragic recovery, Bobby. You're right, Chad. That aftershock, a big earthquake in and of itself. Thank you for that. Yeah. You're welcome.
This morning, we're also monitoring a dire threat in East Palestine, Ohio, where officials have urged the entire town of roughly 5,000 people to leave their homes as teams are scrambling to prevent a catastrophic explosion after a derailed train caused a massive inferno. Authorities say that the train was carrying hazardous materials. They believe an explosion could send deadly shrapnel up to a mile away. CNN's Gabe Cohen joins me now. Gabe, I know the governor was warning people to leave, saying that there could be this imminent major explosion. What dangerous chemicals were on this train? Well, Caitlin, that's a great question. First, uh, to the cause of the train derailment, it's still under investigation, but we have learned from investigators that there was at least uh, some sort of mechanical failure warning before Friday's crash, which started that huge fire you can see on your screen now burning for nearly three days. And overnight, this situation is getting a lot more intense because officials say there has been a drastic temperature change in one of the rail cars, which is carrying a chemical called vinyl chloride that's used to make uh, PVC pipes, plastics, things like that. And officials think because of that temperature change, there could now be a catastrophic tanker failure and potentially an explosion that could send deadly shrapnel flying up to a mile in any direction, Caitlin. So overnight, uh, officials, they are telling the 500 or so people that are left in East Palestine to evacuate, to get out of that danger zone immediately. Uh, here's the fire chief's warning. We need to get everybody who remained within that mile radius or decided they needed to come back within that mile radius. We need you to leave now. And the county sheriff has also added that there are likely toxic chemicals that are pouring out of that train right now. And people who don't leave that area may not only be in danger, they could also be arrested, Caitlin, because of that evacuation order that's in place, especially if they have kids in their home. Yeah. All right, Gabe Cohen, thank you so much for monitoring this. We'll stay with you. And this morning, an escalating diplomatic crisis after the U.S. military shot down the Chinese spy balloon that drifted across the country last week. Right now, divers are on a mission to salvage the spy equipment from the balloon as the president works to determine what this means for America's relationship with Beijing moving forward. CNN's Carlos Suarez live at Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina, with more on this. Carlos, good morning to you. Where do we stand on recovering the balloon? Yeah, well, that recovery effort is well underway, uh, Don. Uh, good morning. A, a Navy team was spotted at uh, this uh, dive, uh, this uh uh, deck here behind me uh, last night. They spent a good part of Sunday uh, taking a look at some possible debris associated with this balloon that was found in the intercoastal waterways about a half hour north of where all of this is unfolding. We're told anywhere between 10 to 15 miles off the coast of South Carolina, where a military vessel is keeping a close eye in the area where that balloon landed. Navy crews working into the night off the coast of North Myrtle Beach. They just shot it. Including divers searching for debris from the suspected Chinese surveillance balloon shot down off the coast of South Carolina. There's reporting now that the debris field that was created by this balloon when it was shot down was about seven miles long. One onlooker provided this video to CNN showing what looks like a piece of possible debris from the balloon on the back of a boat. This, as we're hearing the audio communications between the first fighter wing pilot and air traffic control that depict the moment the balloon was hit. The balloon is completely destroyed. 
The balloon was first spotted on January 28th when it entered Alaskan airspace. By Tuesday, it had entered the continental U.S. and was spotted over Idaho and Montana. I told them to shoot it down. On Wednesday? On Wednesday. But the recommendation They said to me, let's wait till the safest place to do it. The military advised President Biden that the debris from shooting down the balloon could pose a risk to civilians and infrastructure on the ground. The suspected Chinese surveillance balloon continued to make its way across the U.S., moving all the way to the East Coast. Once it was over the Atlantic, it was shot down. And the key is, is the payload that was attached to it, which you've reported is you know, the size of three bus, uh, buses. Um, that's, that's obviously huge. And it was being commanded and controlled by mainland China and delivering in data and information back to mainland China. Again, if you look at the path and you put X's where all of our sense of missile defense and nuclear weapons facilities are, I believe that they were trying to gain uh, information on how to defeat the command and control of our nuclear weapon systems and our missile defense systems. The Pentagon says at least four other Chinese surveillance balloons have been spotted in recent years. They also said they had briefed Congress on previous balloons that flew near Texas and Florida. Officials say this balloon was unique from the others in the path it took and the length of time it spent loitering over sensitive missile sites in Montana. If we were aware of the balloon, uh, I think we should have taken steps uh, to prevent it from entering our airspace. Uh, and I'm not sure that we should have allowed it uh, to simply cross over the country, uh, cross over uh, what were obviously sensitive military sites. I, I, don't, I don't see the logic of that. All right, so military officials believe they're going to be able to get a lot of this debris onto a military, uh, military vessel in short order. They don't think this is going to take uh, several days, several weeks, or even a month. Now, authorities here locally are warning folks that live up and down Myrtle Beach to not take any of this debris back home should it come ashore. They note that this is part of a federal investigation. And underscoring just how much of a debris field we're talking about, Don, authorities out here are putting it at about seven miles. Wow. Can you imagine if you live there, this debris falling? Fascination with it. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. The spy balloon sparking international and political tensions ahead of President Biden's State of the Union address. Hear how Republicans are responding. That's coming up. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Shot a balloon. I entertain you people for four days and then get shot by Biden? Can't believe I'm Joe's Osama. Well, I'm actually surprised you're still floating. Experts were saying you're the size of three buses. <laughs> okay, ouch. <laughs> Saturday Night Live having a little fun this weekend. House, House Republicans are weighing a real vote on a resolution that would condemn the Biden administration for the way it handled that suspected Chinese surveillance balloon. That's according to sources who tell CNN that vote could come as early as Tuesday, the same day that President Biden will be on Capitol Hill to deliver his second State of the Union address. Over the weekend, many Republican lawmakers were quick to criticize President Biden's actions, how they handled it. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott called this, quote, a dereliction of Biden's duty. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell also blasted the administration, saying that their decision came, quote, too late and that it let China make a mockery of U.S. airspace. The Republican House Intelligence Chair Mike Turner said the administration waited much too long to shoot it down. 
clearly the president taking it down over at the Atlantic is sort of like the quarterback, sort of like tackling the quarterback after the game is over. Um, the, the satellite had completed its mission. This should never have been allowed uh, to enter the United States, and it never should have been allowed to complete its mission. Presidents have the ability to go before camera, go before the nation, and basically explain these things early on. And, and his failure to do so, is I don't understand that. I don't understand why he wouldn't do that. And, and that is the beginning of dereliction of duty. What began as a spy balloon has become a trial balloon, testing President Biden's strength and resolve. And unfortunately, the president failed that test. I think this entire episode uh, telegraphed weakness to Xi and the Chinese government. This is all about China testing the American resolve. They know that, that uh, tensions are escalating and they want to see what kind of leadership we have. And no, the president failed on this one. Let's talk about all that has transpired on this over the weekend. With us now, CNN senior national security correspondent Alex Markhardt and CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger. He's also the White House and national security correspondent for The Times. Good morning to you both. Um, we'll get to the blame game in a moment because it does matter and there are real questions the Biden administration has to answer here. Uh, just like Tom Cotton said, the Wall Street Journal editorial board calls this a trial balloon over Montana, right? <laughs> but where does this put us, David, uh, Big picture, U.S.-China relations. What, a few weeks after that, U.S. general wrote that memo saying prepare for possible war between the two superpowers by 2025. Well, Poppy, U.S.-China relations were not in good shape prior to the balloon happening. Uh, and we saw that President Xi Jinping had finally met with Biden in Bali uh, back in the fall, late fall. And there was an effort to try to at least put a bottom on the relationship. But let's face it, we are in a military, a technological, a trade, and an economic competition with them that has turned quite nasty. Taiwan, as you mentioned, is considered extremely vulnerable and very tied in with the question of our semiconductor supplies, the most critical uh, stuff we get. The timing of yeah. the balloon thing is really inexplicable. If Xi Jinping is really trying to put a better relationship together here, You've got to think that somebody didn't get the memo and went ahead and did this anyway. And my guess is that he's pretty angry about it, too. And, that you know, the failure here, whatever you think about that how Xi Biden is, very that Xi Jinping is and that whatever whatever mistakes the Biden administration may have made. And I think they undercommunicated on this. The bigger mistakes were on China's side. Mm. One thing I'm confused by, Alex, and I wonder what you're hearing from officials, which is the notion that there were previous occurrences of this, which we heard from the Pentagon right after this was happening. Esper, the former defense secretary, told us Friday he had no idea about any of this ever happening. And now they're saying that they were discovered after Trump left office. I mean, I don't understand how that happens and they don't notice it. Yeah. It, in this case, it was clearly discovered in real time. It was spotted the 28th of January uh, near Alaska over the Aleutian Islands. And then it swept down through Canada into uh, the United States. And the, the Pentagon has said clearly there were these three other instances during uh, the Trump administration. We've heard from former President Trump himself, as well as his Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, saying uh, that didn't happen during the administration. And, and now, just last night, we heard from the White House um, that it was only after when Biden came into office that they discovered uh, that this had happened during the Trump administration. So clearly there's some kind of um, analysis that is happening, some kind of intelligence gathering that has only determined long after Trump left office that these balloons were in fact from China and had briefly 
crossed over the continental United States. And I think it's that, that briefly that is very important. What was different here, um, according to experts and the Pentagon, was, was that this thing loitered. It hung out um, over the United States for quite some time. It took a long time to cross the country. Um, it was maneuverable. They were able to direct it. This was able to gather intelligence in, 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 a, a, more, in a more robust way than some of these previous balloons. But what we keep being reminded by these military officials is that these balloons don't have much stronger intelligence gathering capabilities than, say, Chinese satellites. But the fact that this balloon was able to hang out uh, made it much more uh, of a pressing matter, not to mention the fact that countless Americans across the country were literally able to look up yeah. and see this thing. It was a much more flagrant violation. Well, that was all fascination with the American people. But let's just let's be honest about this. And obviously, this is serious. But I thought that producers had smelling salts off of the on the side of the set for Republicans who came on. Oh my God, this is. I mean, just hyperventilating about this. Yeah. It is serious. But if it happened under the Trump administration, they didn't discover it. Isn't that possibly a failure of the Trump administration. I mean, there's so much blame to go around. I, I was reading your piece and I thought that you were saying, hold your horses, people. This is way different than what we think. Don't hyperventilate over it. This has happened before. And this is just sort of an intelligence race or a spying race that both co countries have been going through for such a long time. So hold, just sort of hold your horses and see what's happening here. Well, Alex is right. What was different here was the visibility of this whole thing, right? I mean, you could stand and see it. So you sort of... it you had the sense that you were in the midst of the U.S.-China competition in a way that you don't when there's a cyber intrusion. Yeah. Now, if you think about the cyber intrusions that the, the Chinese have done over the past few years, they stole the design for the F-35, the most expensive fighter jet you ever paid for, right? They got into the Office of Personnel Management. Right. Caitlin and I covered this from the White House. And they got the, uh, the security records, the clearance records of 22 million Americans. That's a lot more than I suspect you could have gotten from the balloon. The balloon had a certain utility, which is that it is at a lower altitude than a satellite, obviously, and you can pick up more electronic transmissions. And we believe the U.S. has changed in recent years the way we, they communicate with our nuclear forces. So the Chinese may be interested in that, but it's a lot less, I suspect, than they probably would have gotten from cyber attacks. If you're Biden, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Let's say he had shot this down somewhere over the country, and there was an opening, we're told, on Wednesday. That's why that airspace over Billings, Montana, was shot down. So he shoots this thing out of the sky, 60,000 feet up, all this metal and glass comes clanging to earth and could have hurt somebody. It could have hurt, um, you know, property. And, and then we would be hearing a lot of people criticizing Biden for not taking the time to wait until it's over the water to, to shoot it down. So for what we understand, the two priorities uh, by the military and the Biden administration were to keep people safe and to only shoot it down when it was safest. And they did that as soon as it hit the coastline mm -hmm. and to do it in a way that they could preserve and salvage this surveillance payload, all that equipment that was hanging below the balloon. So all this stuff comes crashing down again from 60,000 feet spread over seven miles into the water. So now the military is actually quite excited because they are going to be able to pick this stuff up um, off the seabed. It's only 47 feet below the surface of the water, which apparently is quite shallow. So they are looking forward to analyzing it, understanding what capabilities the Chinese have, what they were able to learn during this yeah. mission. They're still looking for it. And they say, do not touch it. Call <laughs> your seven miles. You it. Seven, seven miles. Seven miles. Huge. Well, the seven miles yeah. tells you something. Right? Biden had a reason to be careful. Yeah. To be about, careful. Yeah. Just how huge this That's was. That's a good point, David. Yeah. 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 Thank Thanks. you both. Good to see you. you. Appreciate it. Like, not love.
Ahead, the new scene in reporting on how Democratic, the Democratic Party leaders are feeling about President Joe Biden. And we are also closely following the tragedy that is unfolding in Turkey and Syria this morning. More than 1,300 people have been killed after a powerful overnight earthquake happened as people were sleeping. We're going to take you live on the ground to Turkey. That's next. So we are following breaking news this morning. Tragedy across Turkey and Syria as more than 1,300 people have been killed. Thousands were injured after a powerful magnitude 7.8 earthquake. Buildings crumbled, trapping people in that rubble. Now rescuers are scrambling to reach them. And there have been aftershocks, including a 7.5 magnitude one within the last hour. We'll continue to follow. And as we monitor that, we also have new CNN reporting this morning about what's happening in Washington as Democratic Party leaders say that President Biden may still be the ticket for 2024, even if they're not passionate about him. This after the president and vice president turned out for the Democratic National Committee meeting in the critical battleground state of Pennsylvania. That's just ahead of President Biden's expected delivered second State of the Union address on Tuesday. CNN's Isaac Dover is live in Washington. Isaac, you've been talking to these sources. What are they saying about how they're viewing what that 2024 ticket could look like? Yeah, good morning, Caitlin. I was in Philadelphia last week for that meeting of the Democratic National Committee. Those are the state party chairs, the most involved uh, party operatives. And they say, look, they are so happy with what Biden has gotten done, <clears throat> really satisfied with the sense of calm that he's brought to a lot of things in Washington and in the party overall. But they just don't feel that exact passion, that love for him that maybe they felt for Barack Obama or that Republicans and the base feel for Donald Trump. I was talking to Jamie Harrison, the DNC chair about this. And he said to me, look, you don't find uh, Joe Biden's face on a T-shirt. That's true. Uh, but uh, Donald Trump's face might be on a T-shirt. He lost in 2020. And you see a lot of that feeling from Democrats going forward into what will be the State of the Union address tomorrow night and what we're thinking will be uh, Joe Biden's pitch as he starts running for re-election, talking about the competency of government making things work, not so much being the cult of personality around him. Yeah, I mean, that's never really been the case with President Biden, but obviously he is still expected to announce that he's running in March or April whenever they make that ultimate decision. Uh, what did Democrats say? You know, are there any candidates out there? Because this is often what you hear from White House officials is, well, who else would you want in this place? Like, who else do they believe could actually deliver here? What do you hear from Democrats on that? Well, look, more, even more to the point, in uh, the 2020 primaries, there were a lot of candidates who were getting more excitement at rallies, who were getting bigger crowds, all the things. But one by one, they lost to Joe Biden for the nomination, and then Joe Biden won the presidency. So the, that is one of the things that you'll hear out of Biden advisors, too. Look at the way that this went so far. But when, when you look at the other Democratic contenders out there, there are a lot of questions that remain uh, about Vice President Harris, whether she would be able to pick up the mantle if uh, Biden uh, surprised everybody and didn't run for re-election, and whether there would be other people out there. There are other emerging Democrats, but no one quite who's at the level uh, so far in people's minds as being able to galvanize the party uh, or maybe the country the way that you saw with those uh, uh, campaigns around Barack Obama or around Donald Trump. Yeah, and at the end of the day, they want someone who can win. Isaac Dover, right. thank you for that reporting. Can we just, uh, thank you. Can we just bring Ben in right, right now, because we're going to talk to him about something else. We'll read the lead in later. Ben, thank you, because I want you to respond to this. Is this, this, is this a disconnect between the people and the party leaders? Because if you look at what happened with Biden, you know, with his 
when he made the speech and he went to the convention or whatever, people love him. The people on the street love him, but the people in the party are like, eh, I'm not so sure. So what, is this real? You know, I think there are a lot of Democratic voters, particularly, for instance, black voters in South Carolina who really love Joe Biden. And that's and, and that's why nobody's going to run against him um, for what, whatever party elites feel, whatever sort of journalists feel about him, actually. Yeah. That said, he's, he's not a movement candidate. He's not filling stadiums. But, um, but that's how he won the first time, by being good enough for most Democrats. Yeah. But I guess the question is, do Democrats, what, how do, what is voter sentiment? Because that new Washington Post-ABC poll that came out yesterday said, among Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents, 58% said they would prefer someone other than Biden as the nominee in 2024, actually. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think, but you just can't. I mean, it's an old cliche, but you don't beat somebody with nobody. And, yeah. and I think they're, I think, I think the Democratic Party is just totally, totally set to kind of settle for Joe Biden. To, to Caitlin's good point, Jim Clyburn was asked about that poll number this weekend on ABC, I believe, right? And he was so critical in Biden getting the nomination last time around. Uh, and I just wonder um, what, what you think that support, not just from him, but those who boosted Biden when he needed it most, means this time around? You know, I just think it means that I know that Democrats who have thought about, you know, there's a cadre of Democrats who want to be president, like all of the ones in the Senate. And, <laughs> you know, and, and they, like all of yeah, them. And, and, you know, like, oh, yes, every elected official. And I think every single one of them who has looked at it has decided it would be because that it would be political suicide to, to run a primary against him. I mean, I assume somebody will in the end, just because it's an incredible way to get attention for some backbencher in the House, um, you know, the way Dennis Kucinich used to. Mm -hmm. But it just doesn't seem like there's, you know, a major figure about to step up. So can we turn to, to the media and how it has covered Trump's 2024 campaign so far as we prepare for Nikki Haley to get in the race, you know, mid-next week? Um, many eyes on DeSantis and what he's going to do. Do you think at all the media is underplaying a Trump 24 potential win, given these latest polling numbers, like it did yeah. for 2016? You know, I kind of, I mean, I think the media, we all, after an election, sit around and decide what mistake we made last time and that we're not going to make that mistake again, then make some new mistake. And it does, I mean, there is this kind of unspoken consensus in the media that Trump isn't a serious candidate, I think. And if you look at, the, there's not that much coverage of him. I mean, Fox is actually kind of boycotting him, which is why you see a real drop off in cable coverage. Do you believe coverage. that? Do you believe that it's under, do you believe he's not a serious contender? Or do you think people of course he's a serious contender. He's ahead in the polls and he's out there, you know, finding often the most extreme position on the social issues that are what motivates Republicans right now. Like last week, didn't get a lot of coverage, but he launched... And a, you know, a sort of new attack, not on the arguments around transgender youth medicine, which is where the sort of policy dispute, to the degree there is one, has been, but on transgender people at all ages, which is totally new, which is a thing that, you know, kind of crosses a new line. I think he'll be pushing Republicans toward the most hot button, the most divisive issues, which is where he lives. Then what of it then, if you, since you're, you know, in the media, now you're semaphore, you were with the New York Times, then what, what do you make of as you were saying, the Fox News and conservatives sort of downplaying Trump, trying to really just quiet him, don't you think? Yeah, I think, there, I mean, I think there's kind of a conspiracy. What of that? I mean, that? Will that affect him? Yeah, and they're trying, you know, they're certainly, I think last cycle, they were, people were afraid to challenge him and kind of thought that by, you know, giving mean off-the-record quotes to reporters, they could undermine him. It didn't work. You certainly see major powers in the Republican Party, Fox News, the Koch Network, 
really going at him frontally in a new way, and that's the, new the for him. thing is, in, is yeah. really interesting. It's this memo for people who didn't read it, basically saying that they are going to get involved in the 2024 primaries. They don't say Trump directly, but this internal memo talks about moving on from the past. That is basically everyone's like new cliche line when they're talking about Trump without saying that they're talking about Trump, yes. right? Yeah, it was, they, they spelled Trump a whole lot of different ways in that memo. It was, uh, but, 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 you know, but, but in fact, that was in some ways quite courageous, right? I mean, I think they're, they're going to take a lot of heat. Anyone in the Republican Party who's challenging him is going after the most popular figure in the party, and it's going to take a lot of heat. Yeah. Thank you, Vincent. I've read ahead in the textbook. Editor-in-chief of Semaphore, the former New York Times media columnist, Ben Smith. Thank you Thanks very much. Thanks for introducing me. I just wanted you to get in on the last conversation because we were sitting here like looking at each other going, is that true? What do you think of that? There's so many different things about Biden that people, like my mom, who is the sort of, you know, church lady every Sunday, votes, rain, sleet, snow or shine. She loves Biden. She, it doesn't matter. She's a, the classified document. She goes, oh, well, Trump, ha-, you know, the whole thing. And then you read what the Democratic Party leaders say, and it's just sort of a disconnect. And yeah, the whole that's right. sort of, I just want to know what is real. I mean, that's been, that's been how he, that's why he's president. He's defied, every, you know, logic for most people, or at least, or at least expectation. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Appreciate it. History was made several times at last night's Grammy Awards. Did you guys watch? No. Did you guys watch? I was snoozing. Did anybody here go? I don't know. <laughs> Chloe Veloz is here. She has a recap. We got to talk about it. Whose night? Beyonce's Thank night. <laughs> I'm grateful. As we are witnessing history tonight, breaking the record for the most Grammy wins of all time. Be upstanding and show your respect. It's Renaissance, Beyonce. Thank you so much. I'm trying not to be too emotional. And I'm trying to just receive this night. It's like, thank you, God. She had a moment there. And look, she can't even, she doesn't even defy traffic because Beyonce was stuck in traffic. But she made it for this one. (laughs) She made history last night. She became the most awarded artist in Grammys history. Her album, Renaissance, won her her 32nd Grammy Award. For more on that and the other big moments of the night, CNN Entertainment reporter Chloe Malas joins us now. Hello. Hello. Well, first of all, how did you make it back? Because (laughs) I was not expecting to see you. I followed you all weekend for all your fun Grammys behind the scenes. I had a really great time. It's not about me, and I'll explain to that. Can we just talk about, thank you. Let's talk about Beyonce. History, not in the making. She is the goat, as Trevor said. So this is like... A high and a low this morning for Beyonce fans. Such a high because she made history, being the most awarded artist of all time with 32 wins. She had to win four to get there. She tied while potentially in traffic, according to Trevor Noah. That's why she (laughs) wasn't on stage to accept that one. But then she made it, and it was so sweet seeing her sitting there with her hubby, Jay-Z, and she was so emotional and, you know, really thanking the LGBTQ community because that's really who she made this album for. But then she didn't win Album of the Year, and a lot of people were really hoping that this was her moment because she's never won Album of the Year before. Although I'm really thrilled for Harry Styles. I think he it was a big year for him. But a lot of people aren't happy. I mean, you could hear people in the audience screaming out, Beyonce should have won while Harry was speaking, which obviously Beyonce wouldn't have wanted because, you know, Beyonce, a lot of celebrities know how it feels to have their moment taken. That's her second time, remember? 
with Kanye. Well, see, okay, Adele. And Taylor. And Taylor, remember? But yeah. this was going to be the big, this was Adele versus Beyonce going head-to-head. It had been six years since they were head-to-head in that category. Adele won six years ago, and many yes, people and that felt. great speech. And then Adele kind of, like, apologized for winning because Beyonce fans really, again, so supportive of Beyonce. We love Beyonce. And so many people thought it was going to be either one of them. So you could see, though, that Adele was visibly upset. I mean, she was cheering for Harry, and then she made a beeline out of there and left pretty quickly. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it goes to show you that they really don't know in advance who's going to win. You know, I've always wondered, like, do they have an inkling, like, come on, come, come to the Grammys. We're going to sit gold. you in the front because you're going to get something. But no. You see real disappointment. I loved that Taylor Swift, Harry Styles' ex-girlfriend, was one of the first to stand and give Harry a standing ovation, and she stood the whole time. So I loved that. That's what a lot of... That was a great album from Harry Styles. I mean, it was the fourth time that Beyonce has lost out on this. The other thing, there was history made last night with Kim Petras when she was accepting her award, speaking about what Beyonce was saying in her in her acceptance speech. Okay, well, Madonna comes out to first present to have them take the stage to perform Kim and Sam Smith. And it was just incredible to watch that performance. And then they had won. um, And this is a big moment for the trans community. And so that was just really incredible to see. So much history. And then also, I just want to point out Viola Davis becoming an EGOT winner. Oh, my goodness. That means Emmy, Grammy, Oscar. Two Tonys she has. There's so (laughs) much. I feel so underaccomplished, Viola Davis. There's so much to talk about but I just before we go quickly humble brag so I was at at the Clive Davis pre-party and where I was sitting everyone had to walk by me and then the only well a couple people I got but I got up when I saw Cardi B walk by, because she's like my Instagram buddy. I'm like, Cardi! You, I, you're, you're the reason why I didn't go to bed, because I was watching right. your Instagram live. Sharon Stone, we, we got to talk later. All right, all right. We got to go. Sorry, but I had to do a little humble brag. We'll be right back. Thank you, Chloe. I love that. I hadn't seen those pictures. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Ukraine's defense minister says their soldiers begin training today on those leopard tanks in Germany, as other crews are already in the United Kingdom training on British tanks. Meantime, CNN is on the ground with access to NATO's recent war exercise. Our Nick Robertson reports from Estonia. Danish Leopard 2 tanks, similar to those soon to be deployed to Ukraine, storming an imagined enemy position in Estonia. French troops attack fictional front lines as Estonian troops pretend to hold them off. All part of the Baltic nation's annual NATO winter exercise to gel the multinational alliance into a singular fighting force. This year, these military exercises feel different. The French have brought in far more troops than the past. And with war still raging not far away in Ukraine, commanders say this training feels much more real. Two-thirds of the 44 tanks involved in the exercise, British Challenger 2 tanks. More like these, also soon deploying to Ukraine. Lessons learned here, valuable for the Ukrainians. Communications between the Challenger and Leopard tanks, critical. But no doubt, used correctly, they could be a game-changer. Both can do 
can fight at night and they've got hunter killer capabilities as well so they can engage a target while looking for the next target so very uh, much more advanced tanks with advanced sighting systems than what the adversary would have the ukrainians say they want to use the leopard 2 tank as an iron fist to punch through russian lines give putin a bloody nose and snatch back territory they've lost the lesson here that won't happen overnight Typically, Danes train individual Leopard 2 operators in two weeks, a crew of four in two months. But it can take two years to combine them into a force able to seize territory. See, it's the tactics that takes time. Then you have the theory as a crew, and then you have to learn to drive as a crew within a platoon and within the squadron. Estonia's defence minister, whose country spends a whopping 1% of GDP supporting Ukraine, watching the training, keen to get the tanks to Ukraine soonest. I really hope that it's not too late. I really hope because we all understand that uh, there is a push from Russians uh, coming in a, in a very like uh, coming months uh, or coming weeks even. So is this a make or break moment in the next few months in this war? Probably. So it's uh, once again when when there will be no breakthrough in the coming weeks and months, uh, then probably we will end uh, or we will step into the very long time of war. This operation ongoing for another week, as elsewhere Ukrainian troops begin to get their hands on beasts like these. How quickly they can use them effectively will impact well beyond Ukraine. So the lessons learned here about combining the tanks with the infantry on the ground, this is exactly what Ukraine needs. One other thing we learned about these Leopard tanks, they can go backwards as fast as they can go forwards. Russian tanks can't do that. That shoot and scoot capability again gives them another advantage when facing off the Russians in the east of Ukraine. Uh, it helps us understand their capability a lot. Nick Robertson, fascinating report from Estonia. Thank you very much. And next, we have much more on our breaking news this morning. Thousands of people are feared dead in a very powerful earthquake in Turkey and Syria. difficult task for us. We need help. We need the international community to do something to help us, to support us. Northwest Syria now it's a disaster area. We need help from everyone to, 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 to save our people. Remember him because there are many people like him searching for loved ones and others. Good morning everyone. There's a desperate plea for help after a catastrophic earthquake killed more than 1,500 people in Turkey and Syria. And I said keep an eye on him. There are many like him because we're going to speak to that very same rescuer, one of Syria's white helmets, as he searches for survivors in the wreckage. Right now emergency crews are scrambling in Ohio trying to keep a toxic train wreck from exploding. Also, after the U.S. shot down the suspected Chinese surveillance balloon, there is the diplomatic crisis and Republican blowback that President Biden is now facing, all as he is preparing to give his second State of the Union address tomorrow night. Also this. Southwest Fort. FedEx is on the go. Close call there. Another near disaster at a U.S. airport. What we're learning about that very close call between a Southwest flight and a FedEx plane. We begin this morning in Turkey and Syria, where more than 1,500 people are now reported dead. 
after a massive and catastrophic earthquake flattened buildings and homes while people were asleep. The death toll just keeps rising and rapidly as rescue teams search for survivors and pull bodies out of giant piles of concrete. The situation particularly dire in northwest Syria. It is an area that's already been ravaged by the country's horrific civil war. This is video of rescuers pulling a toddler out of the rubble. A little girl's clothes stained with blood. Take a look at this video. It's from Turkey, and it's just moments ago after a major and powerful aftershock. If you look at the water along the side of the road, you can see it's thrashing back and forth. Jumana Karachi is tracking the very latest developments from Istanbul. Good morning, Jumana. What do you know at this hour? Absolutely devastating major 7.8 earthquake that struck uh, about 11 hours ago. Uh, the epicenter dawn of this earthquake was the province of Gaziantep in southern Turkey. But the impact, the effect this has had, it, has, uh, it stretches across at least 10 provinces in southern Turkey and as well as into uh, neighboring Syria across the border into rebel-held areas of Syria in the northwestern part of the country as well as regime-controlled areas. We have been getting information coming in from officials of this death toll that is continuing to rise in both countries. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, more than 1,500 people so far, the Turkish president saying more than 900 so far confirmed killed uh, in Turkey. But the concern is they don't know how many people remain uh, under the rubble. We are talking about this vast, vast area of devastation, uh, an area where you have so many buildings, thousands of buildings, according to the Turkish presidents, that that have been uh, destroyed. Uh, So the fear here in a country that has seen so many uh, devastating earthquakes over the years, um, some that have claimed thousands of lives that this could be another one. The Turkish president Erdogan describing this as the biggest disaster in more than 100 years, Don. Jamana, thank you. We appreciate your reporting live in Istanbul this morning. So joining us now from near the earthquake's epicenter in Gaziantep, Turkey, is Dr. Mazen Kuara. He is a Middle East director for the Syrian American Medical Society, which is a relief organization. They work on the front lines of crises just like this. Doctor, thank you. Um, good, good morning to you. I know when you and your family started to feel everything shaking around you, my first question is, are they all okay? And can you describe what it is like around you? Yeah, Thank you so much. Uh, yes, they are all okay. They are all uh, in my car here mm. with me. They are all o- okay. And uh, uh, thanks to God that everyone is safe. He's sitting in a car. You're, you're, is that the safest place for you guys to be at this moment, is sitting in a car, unfortunately? Yeah. Yes, yes. We cannot use uh, the buildings uh, any, any, anymore uh, for maybe hours, maybe till tomorrow. I don't know. Uh, because we are continue experiencing uh, uh, aftershock uh, earthquakes. So, uh, so uh, uh, the, the last one was 7.6. So it's very, very strong. So we cannot go back to our buildings and apartments. And is that because of the makeup of the buildings? I mean, I was reading that a lot of the buildings in Gaziantep are made of brick, brittle concrete, that they're pretty vulnerable to those aftershocks. Is that your major concern here? I don't know. Frankly speaking, uh, uh, there is no. Uh, you, you cannot see that big damage in Gaziantep city, 
right now but uh, next to my uh, to my building about 200 to 300 meters there's a collapsed building and there, there are many uh, buildings collapsed in in, in Gaza and uh, so i cannot i cannot tell you why i it's not clear to to me uh, there is no that big uh, uh, destruction in the city but some buildings are are, are collapsed uh, and uh, already Doctor, you are from originally from Damascus. So could you speak to after 10 years of civil war has ravaged Syria, what the challenge will be like, the scale of the challenge to find any possible survivors and also to try to rebuild after this, considering the war? The situation uh, before the earthquake uh, was very dire and catastrophic. Uh, especially in the areas uh, of, of uh, the rebel-controlled areas uh, in northwest Syria. So, unfortunately, this earthquake came to, to, to make things very, very, very challenging to us as a humanitarian organization to be able to respond to, to the uh, humanitarian needs there. So, uh, as, as you know, uh, the situation uh, uh, before, before that, we were... Uh, uh, very uh, 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 was very challenging situation because of the winter circumstances and uh, lack of uh, funding and the, uh, the uh, devolution of the currency uh, value. So everything was against the the the, the simple uh, civilians uh, there. The earthquake came right now to 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 maybe make the final hit to, 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 to those uh, communities. I don't know. I cannot explain to you right now what is the situation. We have four of our hospitals, four hospitals uh, damaged severely by, by, by the earthquake. We evacuated two of them because, because of the earthquake. And the, the, the number of collapsed uh, buildings in northwest Syria is huge. So, so I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Hey, doctor, can I ask you something just quickly? Because I'm fa- just fascinated by your personal situation. How many people you got in the car with you there? We are six right six now. Six in one car. And if, 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 who's holding the camera? If you want, if you want to, to, to say hello to my uh-huh. kids. Mm-hmm. And yeah. are you able to open the window to see where you are and what, what it's like behind you? Yes, yes, I can, but because it's uh, it's uh, uh, very uh, uh, rainy uh, uh, circumstances and rainy conditions here in Gaza, and uh, the people is is uh, 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 collecting themselves in a collection center, like collection centers here in Gaza, and uh, prepared by the uh, the municipalities. So it is the safest area I, 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 can, I can feel safe uh, uh, in my car with the family. Will you guys be safe? And thank you for showing us. Um, and we hope that, you know, they can, the rescuers can get to the folks as soon as possible. But, Doctor, we really appreciate you. you joining us. And thanks for introducing us to your family as well. Stay safe.
And as we continue to monitor what is happening in Turkey and Syria, we're also monitoring the fallout from the Chinese spy balloon that is now looming over President Biden's highly anticipated State of the Union address tomorrow night. Top GOP lawmakers are criticizing the president and his administration for waiting until Saturday afternoon to bring down the balloon. Presidents have the ability to go before camera, go before the nation, and basically explain these things early on. And, and his failure to do so, is I don't understand that. I don't understand why he wouldn't do that. And, and that is the beginning of dereliction of duty. What began as a spy balloon has become a trial balloon, testing President Biden's strength and resolve. And unfortunately, the president failed that test. I, I think this entire episode uh, telegraphed weakness to Xi and the Chinese government. Now, House Republicans are considering passing a resolution that would condemn the Biden administration for the way it handled the balloon. It's mainly symbolic. It's a non-binding resolution, but it would set the stage for President Biden's address. CNN's MJ Leave is live at the White House. MJ, we heard the criticism from Republicans, but what is the explanation from the White House about the timing? Why Saturday afternoon was when they decided to finally bring down the balloon? Well, what we've learned, Caitlin, is that when President Biden first learned about this suspected uh, spy balloon, his initial reaction was to say, well, shoot it down. Uh, but now we know that his military advisors told him that that wouldn't be a good idea, essentially because the debris that would result from shooting that balloon down over U.S. land uh, could really hurt people on the ground. I mean, remember the payload, uh, the structure really uh, below that balloon was the size of three buses. And so they essentially advised him, we need to do this at a safe moment when it is essentially over a body of water, and that is what happened. Uh, U.S. officials are now saying that they did this at the safest and earliest possible moment, and that they are now focused on the recovery efforts, and that what President Biden himself is specifically focused on is trying to recover as much of this structure as possible so that they can learn as much as possible uh, about the Chinese surveillance efforts. But as you just played there, Republican officials over the weekend very much criticizing the president uh, for not acting with enough speed or transparency. And as you said, this all looms over his State of the Union speech on Tuesday. Uh, you can imagine that if there were going to be any explicit mentions of China, this is certainly going to alter that. Yeah. And so that's the big question here. And the bigger picture of this is, you know, they had to cancel Secretary Blinken's expected trip to China this week. The broader question I think people will be asking, regardless of the criticism of what they should have done, is how it affects U.S. relations with China that were already not great. And so what are officials saying about that? Yeah, you know, as you just said, uh, U.S.-Chinese relations were incredibly fraught to begin with. We know that there was an attempt at a real reset in recent months, uh, really starting with that big bilateral meeting between President Biden and President Xi Jinping of China. Uh, but now uh, things are really looking not good again. You know, there is the diplomatic fallout that we are seeing uh, clearly playing out, beginning with Blinken, as you mentioned, delaying that trip to Beijing. Uh, and we just don't know exactly uh, how this is going to play out because the U.S. is saying this is definitely a surveillance balloon and the Chinese are denying it and saying that uh, this was an overreaction on the part of Washington. Yeah, well, going to be hard for them to deny that as the Navy is recovering it, though. MJ Lee, thank you for that report. So let's hear what Chinese officials are saying. For the first time, Beijing is admitting that a secret balloon spotted over Latin America this weekend belongs to China and was, quote, used for flight tests, close quote. A Chinese foreign ministry official says it is, it, that balloon seriously deviated from its planned course due to weather. Selena Wang joins us live in Beijing. You heard what MJ said at the White House, the position of the Biden administration. What is the position of Chinese officials this morning?
Well, Poppy, they're still sticking to their claim that it was a weather balloon, but now for the first time, they're acknowledging another balloon in addition to the one spotted over the U.S. When I asked the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson about that balloon spotted over Latin America, she said, it came from China. And as for how it got there, well, the explanation was very similar to Beijing's claim of how the other balloon entered the U.S. She told me the balloon over Latin America was civilian and due to the weather and limited ability to control the airship, it drifted into the area by, quote, mistake. And take a listen, Poppy, to this other exchange I had at the press briefing. The U.S. is confident, though, that what they shot down is, in fact, a spy balloon, disclosing that it contains surveillance equipment, equipment not normally associated with civilian research, like collection pod equipment and solar panels, and the balloon was flying over sensitive areas. Can you help us understand how this could be a weather balloon? The unmanned airship is also civilian in nature. We have made it clear that this was an unexpected incident caused by force majeure. But the U.S. side is deliberately hyping it up and even attacking it by force, which is unacceptable and irresponsible. And Poppy State Media is parroting that line and also blaming U.S. domestic politics for escalating things. But look, regardless if these moves by China were deliberate or clumsy miscalculations, they're embarrassing for Beijing. Xi Jinping has been on a charm offensive, trying to reset relations with countries that were badly damaged during the pandemic. And now this sets China back diplomatically, making it even harder for Beijing to convince the world that it can play by international rules. Poppy. Absolutely. Selena Wang, thank you for that reporting from Beijing. The perfect person to discuss this now, Democratic Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut. He is a ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee. Good morning. Thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Good morning, Don. So let's get to it. Have you gotten any updates about what they have found in this debris? Uh, no, and I'm not sure anybody has because we've been uh, out of D.C. for the weekend, so we haven't been in a position to go into a uh, skiff to get a classified briefing. But I do anticipate that either today uh, or in the very near future we'll get briefed on what this is all about. Do you think anything that they will find will be useful intelligence? Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. And that's that's one of the elements that is being lost in this whole conversation, you know, being able to capture, hopefully undamaged, who knows, um, you know, what should be their cutting edge surveillance technology is just a huge intelligence win. Yeah, but you, so you, you will get a briefing. You haven't gotten a briefing on this, right? That's correct, yeah. Because I understand you're going to receive a briefing on this incident tomorrow as a member of the so-called Gang of Eight. What are you hoping to hear? Well, um, you know, people, you're hearing a lot of breathless criticism of the decision-making process that the president has. A lot of that, of course, is just partisan, right? You know, the, the very same senators who haven't been briefed, who are, you know, all over Joe Biden right now, uh, had Joe Biden shot this thing down against the advice of his military advisors, they'd be criticizing him for that. What we are going to learn is what the TikTok was, what was the decisions made. What we may not be able to talk about is um, there's a lot of value in observing an asset like this. You know, what did we learn by watching this thing over a period of time? When were the decisions taken? And most interestingly, what are we going to learn about the equipment, right? Yeah. Who made the semiconductors that are on this thing? What are its capabilities? We'll learn a lot. Well, speaking of what you said in the first part of your answer, your colleague on the House Intelligence Committee, uh, Republican Mike Turner of Ohio, was very critical of the fact that the balloon was allowed to enter U.S. airspace in the first, in the first place. Listen to this and then we'll discuss. This should never have been allowed uh, to enter the United States, and it never should have been allowed to complete its mission. If you ask somebody to draw an X at every place where our sensitive missile defense sites, our nuclear weapons infrastructure, our nuclear weapons sites are, you would put them all along this path. Uh, clearly, this was an attempt by China to gather information to defeat our command and control of our sensitive missile defense and nuclear weapon sites. And that certainly is an urgency that this administration does not recognize. 
you agree with his assessment? Do you think that the Pentagon and the White House should have acted faster? Well, again, I, you know, Mike, Mike articulates one point of view. He may turn out to be true. He doesn't know right now any more than I know exactly what the decision-making process was. Look, um, there is enormous value in observing up close and personal an asset like this. What are its capabilities? How does it maneuver? What is it collecting? What is it emanating? Uh, you know, we need to see... Uh, whether the decision was deliberate or whether it was careless. I, I'm going to withhold judgment until we, until we get that TikTok. Correct me if I'm wrong. You did not want them to shoot it down, did you? That was not what, what you wanted. When I learned, when America learned, that this was not a weapons platform, it presented no threat to the American people. As somebody who is focused on intelligence, um, I'm, I would like to get this thing, you know, there was a lot, let's shoot it down over land. As I said, sort of on social media, I would much rather have this thing whole than be, you know, scraping its charred remains off a field in Nebraska. So there's just immense intelligence value in having this thing brought down over water where we can salvage it in a more, hopefully, complete fashion. And now that it is shot down, because you, you want to have the intelligence intact. Do you, do you think that this precludes that? No, no. I think, it, I think um, again, I think bringing it down over water where uh, we have naval capabilities to get this thing um, is a lot better than what it would have looked like had it been shot down and, you know, fallen into a granite mountaintop. So, listen, um, this is not the first time that this has happened, right? And you have insinuated the U.S. also uses similar technology in other parts of the world. Do you fear retaliation from China? I don't fear retaliation by China. They're the aggressor here. Make no mistake. They flew uh, a, a military asset over our uh, sovereign territory. So, no, I don't, uh, you know. By the way, there's going to be retaliation against whoever engineered this operation inside Beijing. What a, what a colossal embarrassment this is for the Chinese. Um, but, no, I think... Um, uh, and, 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 you know, to be very clear here, uh, there's a lot of people who are saying this is new and unprecedented. It's not. We've seen these balloons elsewhere. Um, it should come as no surprise to anybody that the Chinese are spending billions and billions of dollars uh, trying to get our secrets. This is what they do. This is a particularly clumsy attempt to do so. So then all the hyperventilation over this, is this hypocrisy on our part then? Because if we do the same thing and we shoot it down, then... What? Well, it's not hypocrisy because we haven't flown any balloons over, over Chinese airspace. That's a really aggressive and, by the way, stupid act. And so, you know, if they're angry that we shot this thing down, sorry, guys, don't fly your military assets over our country. Um, all I'm saying here now is that we should withhold judgment until we know all of the facts about what was on that thing, what it was doing, and what the decision-making process was. Do you was. think Tony Blinken postponing the trip, do you think that was right? I think that was exactly proportion, right? Um, you know, it's a, it's, again, it's a black eye for China. I think uh, the Secretary of State did exactly the right thing. Let's talk State of the Union tomorrow. What are you expecting from the president? Well, I can tell you what I'm hoping from the president. Um, you know, uh, I'm hoping at a, a two-year retrospective. Uh, this president and a Democratic Congress that capped the price of insulin for Americans at $35, that for the first time ever, well, not ever, but in a generation, did a major infrastructure investment that in a bipartisan way got a semiconductor deal done so that we don't have to worry about getting our semiconductors for China. The list of accomplishments in the last two years uh, is really pretty dramatic. And I hope that he focuses on those kitchen table issues after a week of talking about balloons. It is interesting. Everybody counted Joe Biden out even in, you know, when he was running. And now that he's President Biden, people say, why is he trying to work with the Republicans? This whole bipartisanship, he's not going to get anything accomplished. He has defied expectations. And yet there's new polling out in the Washington Post and ABC News that among voters who lean Democratic, only 31 percent would like to see President Biden run in 2024. Fifty eight percent would like to see someone else at the top of your party's tickets. What's a ticket? What say you about that? What I say is that if the American people look at what he did in his first two years when the Democrats had the House and the Senate, 
again, I could spend 10 minutes talking about it, but lower drug prices, investments in infrastructure, the first in a generation uh, gun safety bill, a lot of it done on a bipartisan basis. The Republicans, what are they offering right now? They're taking Ilan Omar off congressional committees. We voted on a resolution to condemn socialism, right? I want the American people to see the contrast between a president, love him or hate him, who is delivering for the American people and the extremism that we're seeing in the Republican. This polling is only a snapshot in time. Do you see him on the ticket and running again. You know, that's obviously a deeply personal decision for him and his family. I don't, uh, I, I do intelligence, but I don't have information. On Would you like him decision. to run? You know, I think he's got a heck of a record to run on. Uh, and at the end, we'll see. And the, the contrast with Republicans in the next two years. So I think that if he chooses to run, he's going to be a very strong candidate. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you, Don. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Poppy? It happened again. Two planes nearly colliding at a U.S. airport. What we're learning as the feds launched an investigation. Plus, continuing coverage of the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Dramatic new video of people covered in debris running. We're going to have a live interview with a rescuer. Speak to someone on the ground. They are searching through rubble for survivors. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, if you can believe it, there was another near collision between two planes, this time in Austin at the airport in Texas when a FedEx plane was landing and a Southwest plane was taking off over the weekend. The NTSB is now investigating the cause of this near miss. And that's the same agency, as you know, that it's also still investigating a similar close call at New York's JFK airport back in January between the Delta and American plane that we all saw. CNN's Pete Muntean is live in Washington tracking all of this. Pete, what happened here? Well, Caitlin, minor incidents between two planes on the runway at the same time happen pretty often, but very rarely between two commercial airliners and rarely twice in three weeks time. What is immediately clear here is that one of these planes almost landed on top of the other, a near miss that could have very clearly been a disaster. It is the latest case of a near collision on the runway, this time at Austin Bergstrom International Airport. The Federal Aviation Administration says on Saturday, a FedEx Boeing 767 was coming into land as a Southwest Airlines 737 was cleared to take off ahead of it. Air traffic control recordings detail apparent concern from the tower as the Southwest flight remained on the runway. Southwest has a confirm on the road. Well on that. But preliminary Flight Radar 24 data shows the two planes remaining on a collision course. The FAA says the crew of the FedEx flight aborted its landing and started to climb. Experts say averting disaster. FedEx is on the go. The FAA and probably the NTSB will interview the flight crews. They'll interview the tower personnel. They'll review the, uh, the tapes and they'll find out where the mistakes were made. The National Transportation Safety Board says it is investigating this as a possible runway incursion. It is the same type of incident that happened on the runway last month at JFK. In that case, the pilots of a Delta flight were told to abort their takeoff as an American Airlines flight taxied across the runway in front of it. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff plans. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff plans. Rejecting. That underscores, one, that the most dangerous part, the most perilous part of, of your trip is often when the plane is taxiing on the runways. These runways are crowded. 
There is one big difference here between these two incidents. In that JFK incident, the weather was clear. In this Austin incident, this latest incident, there was thick fog. Visibility at the time reported at only an eighth of a mile. Experts say that'll be a big factor in this investigation, Caitlin. It is remarkable to see that graphic of just how close that was. The fact that we're talking about the second incident this soon. Pete Muntean, I know you'll stay on top of that investigation. Thank you. And right now, officials in Ohio are actively working to prevent an explosion from a train derailment that they warned could potentially shoot deadly shrapnel up to a mile away. Also, after a promising January jobs report and the Fed's latest interest rate hike, there are big questions about whether or not the United States can bring down inflation without triggering a recession. We're going to ask the Bank of America's CEO, Brian Moynihan, what he thinks. He's here live on set. That's next. President Biden set to deliver his State of the Union address tomorrow night, and a major focus, of course, will be the U.S. economy. The jobs report on Friday shocked about everyone. More than half a million jobs added in the U.S. last month. Unemployment rate, 3.4 percent, the lowest we've seen since 1969. The Fed last week once again hiking interest rates, but less aggressively, reflecting cooling inflation. And now the question is, can the U.S. pull off a soft landing and bring down inflation without triggering a recession. Happy to have Bank of America's Brian Moynihan here as CEO of one of the biggest banks in the world. He's got some pretty unique insight into where we are going. So good morning. Thanks for being here. Morning, Poppy. Uh, Let's start with tomorrow night in the State of the Union address. Obviously, uh, the president's going to tout the economy, the jobs report, but a big issue is going to be the debt ceiling. What would you like to hear from the president? Well, I think on a debt ceiling, there's a political process to go into discuss, you know, sort of the level of debt and things like that. I think the market loves stability, the economy loves stability, so we hope that at some point they resolve the technical issues, but they'll have a political discussion, and I'm sure that there'll be a lot of discussion around the State of the Union tomorrow night about But I remember when you and a bunch of the other uh, bankers sent a letter in 2011 to Congress uh, warning of how bad a default would be, and that was then, and look where we are now politically. Are you preparing Bank of America for a real possibility of a default? Well, we have to be prepared for that, not only in this country, but in every co- other countries around the world. But, but you just hope it doesn't happen, but you can't hope it's not a strategy. So you prepare for it. You get ready to make sure you have the liquidity, you have the setup. We, you know, we uh, have a lot of consumers who get paid by the government. We have to make sure that that's all set up for them and the waivers on their payments and fees and things like that. That's, that's what we do as we do in a natural disaster or something else. And so I think, you know, hopefully... You've heard both sides say that the idea is not to shut down the government. The idea is to have a strong discussion about the question of how, how high the debt should be. We, we had to put on a lot of debt in the last couple of years mm-hmm. to overcome the pandemic drag on the economy. And you know, administrations from both sides, I also speak, did that. And now it's at some point we've got to start to figure out how that works in the future. But right now, you know, we've got to get past the, uh, the issues of just getting through the technical structure. Sounds to me like you are, though, instilling some contingency plans, because this could happen. Everybody has to. Okay. Do you think it's worth it to have a debt ceiling anymore? Well, This way with Congress in charge? There's a lot of intellectual discussion about that, but uh, because one side says, if you approve the budget, why not approve the debt? Uh, The other side says it's a way to control spending, but it's a political process, and there's got to be an argument about how we make sure we live within our means as a country, and that argument's going to go on. But do you think it's worth it? Do you you believe? Because Janet Yellen has been trying to say, maybe this shouldn't be in Congress's hands. Well, I think Congress has a purse strings. That's whatever article it is. So I, I, I would be careful about trying to restructure the U.S. Constitution. It's been around for 250 years almost. I think we should leave it alone and, and make sure it operates correctly. Fair enough. Uh, jobs report. Wow. 
on Friday. More than half a million jobs created so far beyond what Wall Street had been expecting. Um, why did that happen when we are seeing slowing in the economy? And what does it mean for the Fed and rates? Well, this is one of the key issues is that the unemployment rate has stayed very low, extremely low, and the labor market stays tight. And that's one of the challenges for the Fed, because if you think about prices and stability of prices, one of the questions is wage growth. And it's tipping over and flattening out, which from an inflation perspective is good. In other words, they've started to see the first uh, signs of that. But the reality is that unemployment's low because people are spending money, and the U.S. consumer continues to spend money. So the month of January 23 versus the month of January 22, our consumers spent about 4%, 5% more than they spent last year, okay. um, which is consistent with a 2% growing economy, which is consistent with a low inflation economy. It stopped, last year in the first quarter of 22 versus first quarter of 20, it was like 14%. So it's slowed down, more consistent with a more normal economy as you know, rates have been risen and, and people are wondering about unemployment. But that strong jobs numbers indicator of a good U.S. economy. And the Fed has raised rates and has slowed it down, but not slowed it down enough to choke off. So the what's the disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street? We saw what happened to stocks on Friday. We're a little bit ahead of the open here. Is this Wall Street seeing what the Fed may have to do with this? They need the jobs market to temper and it just isn't. Yeah. And I think that's the question is how long will the rates have to stay up? Yeah. And then what's the drag on, you know, corporate profits and interest rate costs for corporations and companies and mid-sized companies, small companies. That, that's the real question. Mm -hmm. And so the market's trying to discount that every day, trying mm -hmm. to figure out that. So our strategist has, you know, the market sort of flattish for the year, largely because of getting the earnings back in line as to what the earnings growth will be. Mm -hmm. But if you go to the core Main Street economy, uh -huh. what it really means is people are working, they're getting paid more, they're yeah. spending more. They have capacity to borrow. Their debt's in pretty good shape. And while there's attributes to this that don't fall evenly across society, when we look in our broad 30-plus million consumers, mm -hmm. we can continue to see good health there, which is a good thing. Yeah, and you've been more optimistic uh, for months now than a lot of your Wall Street counterparts. Some of them are now in your camp. I thought it was interesting last night on 60 Minutes, the IMF chief, Kristalina Gear gave us, uh, told Leslie Stahl that the, their outlook, the IMF outlook now, is that the U.S. will, quote, narrowly avoid falling into recession. Do you agree? Well, we have, we've had consistently since, for a good while, since the Fed started raising rates after the, the spike in inflation that was clear in the summer of 21 and the fall of 21 that they finally went after in early 22. We've had a mild recession predicted in the future about a year away. The problem is that just keeps moving out. So in the old pig and a steak analogy, we went from the last quarter of last year to the first quarter, first part of this year to the middle of this year. But it's always been a plus or minus 1% on a given quarter basis. And what that really means is it's, it's bumping along at a, basically a, a flat economy. And so that is completely different than the 30% downdraft we had in the yeah. quarter after the pandemic or the 5 or 6% GDP downdraft we've had in other recessions. So that is a soft landing. That is a mild recession. That is what Crystalina and others are talking about. Not a, no, she's, you're not saying no recession, though, yet, right? Well, I don't think there's a heck of a lot of difference between minus 1% and plus you know, zero. Just a lot of headlines. Oh, there is a lot of headlines, <laughs> a lot of Sturm and Dern, and the MBER will have to determine it. But we'll find that out in about two years. What we really know is we've made it through one of the most unusual crises added to other mm -hmm. crises and a mm -hmm. spike in inflation on yeah. the Fed rates and the economy's gone along. Yeah. And that's the power of the U.S. economy. One um, benefit to consumers of higher interest rates, one of the few is um, higher savings rates. But if we can pull this up, Christine Romans brought up this chart on Friday and I really wanted to get your take on it because we're not. Like there's the Fed funds rate, the line that's going up, and there's the savings rate. 
Why? It just feels like Main Street's losing out again. Well, the money goes into off-balance sheet structure. So if you've seen, there's, there's been record flows, you know, record for the near-term flows into money market funds, and people move their money into places that it can earn higher rates. The, the, the bank balance sheets have lots of transaction accounts, zero interest deposits. They're going to be zero no matter what rate it is. That's because the nature of a checking account is you get, you know, 18,000 ATMs in our case, 3,000, mm-hmm. almost 4,000 branches, 24-hour calls, you know, this wonderful online experience. That's all part of what you do in your checking account. So there's a little bit of the, the savings rates, money people have for saving, investing are going up. The tracking rates don't. And then, frankly, people move the money into off-balance sheet places. Just not going up the same way. Let, let me end on China with you. Um, last week, the IMF, again, upgraded their global outlook largely because of China reopening after zero COVID. But now with the whole balloon incident, the U.S. general warning a few weeks ago about potential war with the U.S. and China within a matter of two years, I wonder what your level of concern is right now, Brian, as you think about U.S.-China relations and the impact on the world economy. China is a wholly different um, interconnectivity of the world economy than the Russia situation was. The sanctions on Russia came in, all the banking system and other systems enforced them. But it was a smaller, more internal economy. The Chinese economy is hugely into the supply chain, obviously, of all types of things from furniture to bicycles to chips. Too late to decouple. And and you can't, well, decoupling is a long, long process. And so too late is a question. But that tension you hope solves because frankly, that it'd be a, a, a much bigger hit to the world if something really went wrong. And I think that's what actually pushes people back in the room to make sure something doesn't go wrong. But it's been interesting over the last few years watching this sort of shadow boxing going on between the two countries. And But from a pure economic perspective, mm-hmm. the best thing in the world is to have free trade, the best thing to have open economies, the best thing is to have uh, goods move, the best thing is to have the U.S. citizens be able to buy TVs for very low rates because they're manufactured in places that they have an efficiency. But in but the reality is, is you have two countries that are, that are, after, you know, are, are competing to be the world's dominant power, and that's going to be interesting. Your level, let's leave it here. Your level of concern about U.S.-China relations, you've been CEO for a really long time. Is it the highest now it's ever been? Well, it has to be because there's the most going okay. on. But that's, again, you prepare for all that, you plan for all that, but, and you'd hope that the natural uh, tendency, uh, codependence pushes people let's back in the room. So. We'll see what happens. Brian Moynihan, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it very, very much. Caitlin. Great interview there, Poppy, and thanks to Brian for joining us. Colorado State, meanwhile, this morning is now apologizing for its students after some of them started a Russia chant at a basketball game aimed at a Ukrainian player who was on the opposing team. That was awful. And missing animals in holes and enclosures, a series of suspicious incidents, has Dallas Zoo on high alert. A lot of us in, in animal care at the zoo have gone to some really dark places in our minds in the last month. Um, I can only imagine how scary that is for, for a Langer to have a person in their space who's trying to aggressively grab them. Welcome back, everyone. Police in Dallas now saying the suspect they arrested after the theft of a pair of Tamron monkeys from the Dallas Zoo last week could potentially be linked to tampering with several other animal habitats. CNN's Ed Lavendera, live for us this morning in Dallas. Good morning, sir. This is such an odd case involving so many different animals. What is going on here? Well, you know, the animal caretakers here at the Dallas Zoo have been through an excruciating month. As these incidents have garnered worldwide headlines, zookeepers say that it's been a profoundly disturbing gut punch. And even though one person has been arrested, 
the mystery of why this has happened still looms over the Dallas Zoo. The high-flying Gibbons apes are oblivious to the fact that their little corner of the Dallas Zoo is a crime scene that's garnered worldwide attention. For the humans at the zoo, it's been a nearly month-long nightmare. And they broke into the building. Harrison Edel is the Dallas Zoo's executive vice president of animal care and welfare. He's showing us where the mysterious break-ins, escapes, possible murder, and animal abductions occurred. It started here in this enclosure, which is home to four Langer monkeys. Edel says they found a four-foot-high cut in the wire mesh. We also noticed that some of the climbing structure inside the habitat was broken, and it had literally collapsed, which made us think an animal larger than a Langer had been in here. None of the monkeys escaped. A lot of us in, in animal care at the zoo have gone to some really dark places in our minds in the last month. You can almost picture whoever was in there chasing these guys down. It must have been rather frantic for the animals. I can only imagine how scary that is for, for a Langer to have a person in their space who's trying to aggressively grab them. Around the same time and just two exhibits away, the clouded leopard habitat was cut open. A female leopard named Nova walked right out, setting off what the zoo calls a code blue. The SWAT team rolled out here that morning. Yeah. That's got to be terrifying. Yeah, I mean, SWAT team heard the word leopard and thought, leopard, leopard. High-tech drones were used to search for the 25-pound cat to no avail. That afternoon, two zoo employees standing about 30 yards away from Nova's habitat found her. One of them said to the other one, why is that squirrel so pissed off? And there's a squirrel in the tree barking, and down here in one of these cabinets, the leopard was curled up in a cabinet looking at them. Down here? There's the curator who said, why is the squirrel so upset? <laughs> Lisa Van Sleet, the zoo's mammal curator, called for help. And then a chase ensued. <laughs> but she's, she's safe and sound now. She's safe and sound now. At first we thought maybe isolated incident, somebody tried something and failed. It was just the beginning. A lappet-faced vulture named Pin was found dead. Dallas police said the rare bird had been wounded. And then last week, two rare emperor tamarind monkeys were taken from the zoo. They made a huge cut in this wall of mesh right here in order to get into the habitat. The one-pound monkeys were found the next day in this abandoned house about 15 miles away. Zoo officials say the monkeys were unharmed. That last incident led police to arrest 24-year-old Davian Irvin. He's been charged with six counts of animal cruelty and two counts of burglary to a building. But investigators say he is not currently charged in connection to the death of the vulture. My name's Joe Exotic and this is Sarge. Wildlife experts say the fascination with exotic animals is fueled by shows like Tiger King and social media influencers, creating an underground world of exotic animals as pets. It's a massive problem. Um, the, the globally, the illegal pet trade is, again, dr driving many animals toward extinction. And we think of it oftentimes as a kind of other world problem. This is an opportunity to let people know that you know, animals need to be left alone in their homes. I'm going to sound so old when I say this, but it doesn't help that social media influencers are showing kids that it's cool to have this thing in my house. You think that that might be one of the motivations here? Just that, that kind of influence? I do. I do. And Don, that suspect, Davian Irvin, still remains in the Dallas County Jail, being held on $25,000 bond. Meanwhile, the Dallas Zoo has been adding more cameras. Before all of this happened, they've had 
more than 100 cameras around the property. They say they've been adding more and more as the days have gone by. Don. Yeah, it's not cool unless you're a professional to have one of those. Thank you very much, Ed Levender. I appreciate that. Also this morning, Colorado State University now apologizing after students started a chant against a Ukrainian basketball player on Utah State's team Saturday night. So 40 and 9, 10 seconds remaining here. As Shluga goes to the free throw line. You can hear that refrain in the background. Spectators chanting Russia at Max Shulga. Shulga is from Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital that has been the target of Russia's violent assault over the last year. Colorado State is now apologizing, saying in a statement yesterday, quote, every participant, student and fan should feel welcomed in our venues. For something like this to have occurred is unacceptable at Colorado State. Utah State said the chants were inappropriate and unacceptable, but said they do appreciate the school's administration for not condoning the behavior. Shulga later put out his own statement accepting the apologies, writing, this has been an extremely difficult and challenging year with my family and loved ones so far away and living in constant danger. As for the chance last night, while extremely upsetting in the moment, I also know how emotions can run high during competition and people can do and say things that they don't mean. I hope you will all join me in praying for peace in Ukraine. Just a classy response on his uh, part. Very is. classy response. It is. Just saying things that don't mean, but how do you get there how do you get to the you know chanting ukraine that's just chanting russia russia it's, mm. yeah it's incredibly thoughtless yeah all right we are of course continuing to follow this tragic breaking news overnight the death toll continuing to rise after a powerful 7.8 magnitude earthquake rocked turkey and parts of syria now more than 1500 people are confirmed dead we will speak to a rescuer who is live at the scene next more cnn this morning to come after the break Good morning. Here are five stories to start your day. Thousands of people fear dead in Turkey and Syria as one of the region's most powerful earthquakes hits while people slept. The search is underway for survivors. A train carrying hazardous material derails in Ohio, and this morning a potential explosion is leading to mandatory evacuations. The president was paralyzed for an entire week by a balloon. The president made a very clear and decisive decision Domestic, political, and international blowback as China's spy balloon has upended President Biden's State of the Union address this week, and the U.S. is on alert for possible retaliation from Beijing. Another close call on the runway as a FedEx cargo plane nearly collides with a Southwest flight in Texas. Breaking the record for the most Grammy wins of all time. Queen Bee is now queen of the Grammys. Beyonce making history, taking home more Grammys than any other artist ever. CNN This Morning starts right now. And you can see there's a lot going on this morning. And we have to begin with a dramatic new video of a reporter running for his life on live TV while he was reporting on the devastating earthquake in Turkey. Take a look. (laughs) 
Boy, oh boy, the catastrophic quake has now killed more than 1,500 people across Turkey and Syria. Buildings and homes came crashing down while people were asleep inside, and the desperate search for survivors underway right now as powerful aftershocks continue to violently shake the region. The situation especially dire in northwest Syria, an area ravaged by more than a decade of civil war. I want you to listen to this desperate plea from one of Syria's white helmets. Here it is. Very difficult task for us. We need help. We need the international community to do something to help us, to support us. Northwest Syria now, it's a disaster area. We need help from everyone to, 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 to save our people. So that uh, rescue worker right there, we're going to speak to him in just a moment. We're also working on some live pictures for you from Turkey. But first, we're going to begin with Jamana Karacha in uh, Istanbul. She is tracking all of the, the developments. Good morning to you, Jamana. This earthquake was so powerful, the tremors were felt thousands of miles away in Greenland. It was so powerful, a 7.8 magnitude on the Turkish president describing this as the biggest disaster his country uh, has faced in the last century since the 1939 devastating earthquake that killed thousands of people. The epicenter of the earthquake is the southern province of Gaziantep, but the earthquake zone stretches across 10 provinces, a vast, vast area of southern Turkey and across the borders you mentioned into Syria absolute and utter devastation on both sides of the border. Thousands of uh, buildings destroyed, uh, according to officials. And as you mentioned, that death toll is continuing to rise. Uh, over the past few hours, we have seen it uh, continuing to rise. At least 1,500 people so far confirmed killed, more than 1,500, uh, more than 1,000 of them here in Turkey and more than 500 as well in Syria, both in rebel-controlled parts of Syria in the northwest as well as government-controlled areas. And then you had uh, about 30 aftershocks. One so powerful is 7.5. Can you imagine how terrifying this must have been for people uh, who are still dealing with the trauma of this? The many who are feared to still be trapped under the rubble. And then you've got this very complex and delicate search and rescue operation that is ongoing uh, in Turkey as well as Syria, where in Syria, in this country in no way uh, is it ready, is it equipped, is it capable uh, to deal with this sort of devastation of, uh, after 12 years of war that have decimated the country's infrastructure and services, and especially in the vulnerable part of northwestern Syria, uh, where you're talking about thousands and thousands of people who have been displaced so many times now dealing with this dawn and in the middle of a winter storm. Uh, absolutely miserable conditions for the people who are left without shelter right now and rescue workers uh, who are in this race against time to try and rescue those many who are still believed to be under the rubble. Jermana, we'll be checking back with you throughout the day. Thank you very much for that. Joining us now is Ismail uh, Al-Abdella in Syria. He is a volunteer for the Syria Civil Defense, a humanitarian organization known around the world as the White Helmets. The White Helmets are working right now to pull survivors from the rubble in northwest Syria. Ismail, thank you so much. Hello to you. Uh, morning here, but it's 4 o'clock. Uh, in the evening there. Um, I'm glad that you are safe, but you are one of the people who can tell us what is going on there. So tell us about what you're seeing and how many people you think are still trapped. 
First, uh, the death tour uh, just reached about 400, 400 people killed by the air, by the earthquake. More than 1,000 people are injured. Uh, in each city, in each village, in across northwest Syria, there are people under the rubble. Uh, in each city, we have ju not just one site, many buildings. In this area, in this uh, village where I now, their neighborhood, five buildings collapsed on the on the on the heads of the families. All of them are trapped. As white helmets, we responded. We uh, did everything we can uh, we can do, and we tried our best to help and rescue. But the the reality is with this. Uh, this this area, northwest Syria, which is uh, which was bombed and is bombing bombed by the Assad forces and regime since years, and uh, uh, made the situation more worse for them by bombing the hospital and bombing every uh, medical facility. All of that made the situation worse for us and for the civilians. We, the number of trapped people under the rubble. It's countless until now. We don't have exact number of the people who are trapped. Uh, maybe our operation, our operations in research and rescue will continue for a week, maybe two weeks, because of the larger scale of uh, destruction, devastation, mountain of troubles in many, in many uh, uh, cities and villages. In one village in, in the west countryside of Aleppo. Al-Atarib. 60 people were were killed just in one village, and other villages are still the teams working on it to 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 pull the dead bodies and to uh, to recover and save the others who are trapped. All all this misery, all this tragic tragic conditions, uh, it comes to people who were who were originally displaced from many parts of Syria. Most of them are now under the rubble were displaced from other parts of Syria by the Assad's forces and, and the regime. And now they are under the rubble. Those who are, those who left, who, those who now injured, they are, uh, we, uh, they are facing another fate that we don't have enough hospitals. We don't well, have Ismail. enough... Uh, uh, okay. If you, if you'll just, we have, we have lots of questions for you. Pardon, but I'm sure my colleagues have lots of questions that we would like to to get in to talk to you about what's going on. As I understand it, you uh, you were among the last people uh, to leave Aleppo in 2016, and those were the conditions then. And the civil war raged on. It's ten years now, you know, despite a very fragile ceasefire. Can you speak about how difficult it will be to get any humanitarian aid into those parts of Syria? It's uh, getting humanitarian aid to Syria now. It's very difficult. You know, we're almost trapped by the borders. We're trapped from other, from uh, we just we have the cross border from, of Turkey. So it's very difficult to get the humanitarian aid for those for those who need, but. Actually, the reality tells us that they need uh, support, they need aid, they need, they need uh, something to help them to uh, overcome this this uh, tragedy. Uh, those thousand uh, thousand who are trapped, who are, who are injured, you know, they uh, actually the, the 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 area or where we live now, 
We don't have that infrastructure. We're not uh, ready to deal with something like this. We responded, we dealt with bombing uh, one building, two buildings, and at the same time, five buildings, but not that big number of buildings, not that big number of lives under the rubble. It's very different. It's very different. Uh, it's either, if you can stay, it's bigger than us and bigger than any, any NGO operating in Northwest Syria to, to handle this disaster. That's why in the White Helmets we say that Northwest Syria now is disaster area. We need help. We need support from immediate support from uh, anyone who can support us. Right. Ismail Al Abdella, uh, thank you very much. We're thinking about you. The worldwide resources of CNN will be covering this, getting back to the region as often as possible here on CNN. Thank you. Be well. Also this morning, Navy crews are now working to collect the suspected spy equipment from the Chinese balloon that was shot down off the coast of South Carolina on Saturday. Officials say that debris was spread out over about seven miles of the ocean. The recovery effort is expected to take days. That is a big aspect of this. Joining us now is Diane Gallagher, who is live on a boat off the coast of South Carolina. Diane, I think this is probably the most fascinating live shot we're going to have in this show today, but you're there. Now the Navy is working to try to recover this because what officials want is to know what exactly this balloon could could see. You know, what are you hearing from officials on how long this is going to take? Yeah, so Caitlin, we are in the ocean right now. Behind me is Myrtle Beach, the shoreline there. And then out on the horizon is where we can start to see some of what appears to be those Navy vessels. Now, look, when that suspected Chinese spy balloon was shot down on Saturday, uh, we were told that they already had ships. They had vessels from the Navy and the Coast Guard that were in the vicinity that were able to come and sort of set up a perimeter. Now, where we are right now, uh, we're in the ocean, but it's actually not that deep. In fact, where that balloon came down, according to a U.S. Uh, military official, it's only about 47 feet. And so they say that should make the recovery process fairly easy. Uh, essentially, uh, what they have to do is they can use Navy divers and they can also use these unmanned vessels that can essentially go under the water. They can pick up the structure and put it onto these salvage vessels uh, that have been en route coming here uh, to get it. Now, I will tell you that uh, we haven't been told that we cannot go any further, but we are anticipating being told pretty soon that we're not going to be able to go much further closer to where this recovery area is. Our captain of the boat, we kind of hopped onto a shrimp boat here, and our captain told us that uh, there's usually far more uh, boats and, and, and ships that are out right now. Uh, we're the only one that we've seen out on the waters at this point. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is how close are you uh, allowed to get, Diane? But can you can you actually have the camera pan? We, can you see the recovery effort? Can we have them turn to, to what you so, can see? I, I'm going to... I'm going to go ahead and have him pan and let you kind of see across the horizon. You may not be able to see in part because of the sun. Um, and also, I can see it quite well, the shaping of it with my eyes yeah, here. But again, we're, we're, 
through the camera, it doesn't always translate as well. It's it's coming through there. And you mentioned, look, this is a very, the, the balloon was very big. And this is a seven mile area that this uh, debris is scattered out on. And so uh, what we essentially are hoping to see is some additional uh, vessels, some additional activity, but I'm, again, not very sure how close we're going to get. And I'm going to let you know that as soon as I walked up there, I just lost uh, connectivity to you, so I cannot hear you any longer, Caitlin. I will pass it back to you uh, because, again, I cannot hear you. We're going to see how close we can get before the Coast Guard tells us to turn around. All right, Diane Gallagher, who is off the coast of South Carolina there, monitoring that recovery effort underway. Absolutely fascinating <laughs> to see. You can hear her loud and clear. That wow. was great to it's incredible. see. Uh, great reporting to Diana. Republicans in Washington are slamming the delay in response, calling this a win for China. I think the humiliation this week was inflicted by the Chinese communists on, on the president. Again, we should have shot down this balloon over the Aleutians as opposed to letting it float all across middle America on its merry way. Uh, I mean... The, the idea that we were going to let this go all across America, let a spy balloon complete its spy mission before we shot it down, I, I'm afraid is an embarrassment to the United States. China's defense ministry is protesting the shooting down of that balloon, claiming it was a, quote, civilian unmanned airship. A spokesperson said in a statement that China reserves the right to use necessary means to deal with similar situations. Our chief national security correspondent, Jim Chudo, is with us. Jim, thank you for being here. You've been great covering all of this, you know, since it was shot down this weekend. What does that mean, necessary means, right? How, what might China do now, if anything? Well, there's almost a mob-like ring to it, right? It would be a shame yeah. if something were to happen to one of your, your surveillance aircraft here. <laughs> uh, and let's, let's be clear, the U.S. does fly surveillance aircraft, both crewed and uncrewed, around Chinese airspace. I think we could put up a map here, but those include the Global Hawk, uh, unmanned aerial uh, vehicle, uh, the P-8 Poseidon, which is crewed. I've actually been on one of those over the South China Sea when we were confronted by, by, by the Chinese Navy. Uh, the concern being, does China retaliate? Uh, it's certainly saying it reserves the right to retaliate. Now, I spoke to uh, Pentagon spokesman Patrick Ryder, General Patrick Ryder, over the weekend to ask him if he wanted to respond to those, uh, that veiled Chinese threat. And, and he did respond, and in quite clear terms. Uh, he says, let's be clear, the PRC surveillance balloon was in U.S. territorial airspace, a violation of our sovereignty. We do not conduct such operations in Chinese airspace, so there is no similar situation. The United States will continue to sail, fly, and operate anywhere international law allows uh, we always take the safety and security of our service members seriously. Point being there, the U.S. making a distinction, saying the Chinese balloon came over U.S. territory, that U.S. aircraft, uh, both crewed and uncrewed, go around Chinese territory. But also, in those words there, Poppy, you heard him saying, we're not stopping these flights, right? In yeah. effect, the U.S. not going to be uh, intimidated uh, by those Chinese comments. But, but it's a real danger here because retaliation is a possibility and therefore escalation is a responsibility, and that's something we have to be watching closely. This is not a tit-for-tat moment right yeah. now. Thank you, Jim Shudo. Appreciate it. We'll see you a little bit later on today. Coming up, Indeed. we're going to talk to a former Trump national security advisor, John Bolton. Caitlin's going to do that. Yeah, and a senior White House official now telling CNN that three Chinese spy balloons during the Trump administration were not discovered until after Biden took office. Back in a moment. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
the 2024 presidential election approaches, there are questions, of course, about what is going to look like when it comes to that presidential race. There are new polls out about Americans not being excited about a potential Biden-Trump rematch. Those are big questions on the political front. But that also comes as the president is facing blowback this morning when it comes to how they handled the Chinese surveillance balloon that was shot down on Saturday, that is coming from Republicans. Some Democrats are defending him, as Jim Himes just did on CNN earlier this morning. To talk more about this, we're going to have the former national security advisor under the Biden administration, John Bolton, here. Thank you so much, Ambassador, for being here. I, I think the first question is, do you believe that they should have shot down this balloon sooner? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, when it was first sighted near Alaska on the 28th of January, according to press reports, uh, NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, uh, apparently decided it was not threatening. I I'd like to know how they know the the payload for this balloon was apparently the size of three buses. That's pretty big. Were we confident there was not a nuclear weapon uh, in that payload? Were we confident it wasn't carrying biological weapons, pathogens, or toxins that could have been dumped into a reservoir or spread across croplands? Why were they so sure? And then two days later, they did determine it was an intelligence threat uh, and didn't do anything about it and didn't tell the president of the United States until three days after the first contact, which I find incredible. So you have questions about that because so it was first detected January 28th. It was January 31st that the Defense Department alerted President Biden. That's when he asked for those options about potentially shooting it down. You think he should have been told the day it was detected? Well, I think much sooner. I mean, there's a lot we don't know here. And I think the wording of many of the statements by administration spokesmen is sloppy. And when the wording is sloppy, that often means the underlying story is sloppy. But that's a significant delay in my in my view. And I, I'd like to know the explanation. I'd also like to know where in the chain of command from that first sighting, the first detection of the balloon, how far up did it go? Where did it stop and why did it stop? The argument is that shooting it down over water was the safest option, because what we've heard from officials is that they believed it could have caused damage to people. It could have hurt people to buildings. It could have hurt people if they had shot it down while it was over uh, Montana or Idaho, for example. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I think we obviously have to be concerned about the safety of our citizens. How would their safety be affected if there were weapons on that thing that we didn't act uh, uh, when it was timely to do so? Uh, and with all due respect to the great citizens of Alaska and Montana, uh, it's less populated than here at home. We, we've had bomb shelters before. People can be prepared for this. The government can pay compensation for property damage. Uh, there are a lot of things that just are unanswered about what the government do. But there's another possibility here, too. We, we've talked about this as if shooting it down means destroying it. Back in the day before there was electronic transmission of uh, photographs from space, we used to dump film that our satellites had taken into canisters that came back to Earth and that were caught by airplanes. Now, I don't know the technology, if it, we still have it or if we've junked it or if it was possible here. But, you know, as the saying goes, where there's a will, there's a way. Capturing that payload is going to be very important, whatever we can get off the bottom of the sea. If there were some other way to have brought it down more slowly, resulting in less destruction, so we could have proven this was Chinese intelligence gathering or whatever is in that payload, we should have taken a closer look at. The other thing we heard from the Pentagon right after this happened last week as we were monitoring it was that this actually happened before when your boss, your former boss, former President Trump, 
was in office. We're now learning from a senior administration official who says those previous occurrences were discovered after the Trump administration left office. I think you, as national security advisor, can you answer how did a Chinese spy balloon get into U.S. airspace and someone like you was not told, someone like former President Trump was not told, the former Pentagon chief, Mark Esper, said he was not told about any of this? How did that happen? Well, as far as I know, every Trump administration official who's been asked has said they didn't know anything about it. I will say this. If there was any actual knowledge that these uh, balloons were over the United States and higher authority wasn't told, that's a serious problem. That's a serious problem. That's not what the Biden administration is saying. I, I wrote these words down. I was so, so stunned by them. One official told Fox News that the balloons went undetected, undetected, and then said two things can be true at once. This happened and it wasn't detected. Well, if it wasn't detected when it happened, how did we detect it more recently? Did the Biden administration invent a time machine? Uh, what, ha what, what is the basis of this new detection? Now, I understand that uh, the administration has offered to brief uh, former national security yeah. officials from the Trump administration. They haven't, they haven't called me. I'm not waiting by the phone for it, although I'd take the briefing if they offered it. I think Congress has got a lot of questions here. This was a botched effort from the beginning. And by the way, the fact that there were earlier transits of part of the United States territory, which I think the administration uh, made public to say it's nothing new, don't worry about it, proves exactly the opposite. The very fact, if it is a fact, that the Chinese have tried this before should have alerted us and should have caused us to take action before the balloon crossed into American sovereign territory. Well, notable that you said you do want that briefing. And Ambassador Bolton, while I have you here, I want to ask you about what I mentioned earlier, which is these, these new polls that we're seeing from the ABC and Washington Post on 2024, where it says few Americans are excited about a Trump-Biden rematch. I know you've toyed with the idea of running for office. Have you made a decision on whether or not you're running for president in 2024? Uh, I have not, but I would say whether I run or not, I do think national security is going to be a much more important issue in 2024 than in recent elections. And if this Chinese balloon incident proves anything, it's that the people of the United States need to hear more from candidates what their foreign policy views are. This, these are life and death decisions that presidents make. Uh, and I know it's not been the source of a lot of popular discussion in recent campaigns. That's a mistake for the country. The candidates need to talk about national security much, much more. Do you think Trump has a good message on national security? Trump doesn't have any message on national security other than that he would be perfect. Perfect phone conversations, perfect decisions on the balloon, perfect decisions to solve the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, it's all about Donald Trump. It's not about foreign policy. Former Ambassador John Bolton, thank you for that perspective this morning. Thank you. In a new series, actor and former Obama administration aide Cal Penn explores an optimistic approach to solving the climate crisis, all with his patented humor. Oh, wait a minute. He's here. Cal Penn. He's in studio <laughs> live next. As the 2024 presidential election approaches, where's the enthusiasm? This as Biden gets ready to deliver the State of the Union address tomorrow night. A new Washington Post ABC News poll finds only 36 percent of voters believe Biden has accomplished a great or good deal. 62 percent think He's accomplished not much or little. Let's talk big picture here with former White House aide under President Obama, 
Cal Penn. You'll also, you know, recognize him from movies and TV. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, you got it. He is the host of the new Bloomberg series, Getting Warmer with Cal Penn. Part of the reason I'm sleepy this morning from watching him. Yeah? Oh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for it's watching. Great. Yeah. We'll get to that in your new show in <laughs> sure. a moment because it's actually really important, too, to the you know, future of the planet and stuff. But uh, let's, talk, <laughs> let, let's talk about 2024. So you were there in the trenches in the Obama White House. Yeah. What do you make of these numbers? It, it even has independence more in Trump's camp than Biden's camp. Yeah, look, polls will always fluctuate. It's so far from the 2024 election. I think what's exciting for folks like me and a lot of others is, um, you know, Biden's the most progressive president we've had. This climate bill, for example, um, you know, that took decades of advocacy from a lot of people, especially a lot of young people who aren't necessarily young anymore. And so one of the great challenges, I felt this when I was President Obama's youth liaison, is young people are the only demographic that don't stay with their demographic over a lifetime. Obviously, you age out. Sure. So any of the advocacy you do when you're 18 or 22 that comes to fruition when you're in your 30s, you don't necessarily feel that joy and that ownership. Uh, but that's exactly what's happening. And so I think telling that story and letting folks know, look, Things are not a light switch. Change doesn't happen overnight. It's a really slow build. I think that's a really positive thing for the Biden administration. But why do you think he's not getting more credit for that? Because, you know, you talk about the investments from the Inflation Reduction Act, but the Washington Post poll is 62 percent of people think he has accomplished not very much or little during his well, what have office. they done in their lives? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just kidding. But, yeah, I don't know. Look, I, again, Paul, I, my, one of my first bosses when I worked in, in organizing in Iowa in yeah. 2007 was Paul Tews. Uh, and he basically kept saying polls don't mean anything. He used more <laughs> colorful language than that. But, but it's true, right? It's, it's the idea that, that polls are very immediate. It's a very specific type of group that they're polling. I don't know how these polls work. But back in the day, they would still only call landlines. You're right. Uh, um, right. So right I, I don't know how to respond to those numbers. All I know is uh, between now and when the uh, 2024 election is, is an eternity. And I think the president administration doing a great job. The only real poll, this, uh, someone has said, I forget who said, is at the ballot box. Yeah. Right? The that, polls. The, the actual, when you go to the polls yeah, all, to vote. Also, I mean, look at the last several election cycles, right? Neither Obama nor Trump would have necessarily won if they hadn't successfully expanded the electorate. And none of that would have shown up in polls. Or Biden. Office. Biden has defied expectations. He's never exactly. going to, yeah. you know, you saw what South Carolina did for him. He's never going to win. Sure. Or he's never going to get bipartisan support. I was very critical saying, what is he doing? He should learn during yeah. Obama that the Republicans don't want to work with him. just like that? And now, yeah, just like, because back then I was younger. My voice was a little higher. But um, and now Republicans are working with him and he's facing very tough opposition yep. from Republicans and still getting things done. But can we talk about you? Mm. Yeah. This is about Always. Cal Penn. <laughs> Cal Penn, getting warm with Cal Penn on Bloomberg about climate and clean energy. Uh, this is a clip that I watched last night. It's okay. about plastics. We're going to play it and then we'll talk to you about it. We take a look at a problem we're unlikely to recycle our way out of. Plastic. The perception out there is what I put in my recycling bin, you know, the blue bin, yeah. is what technically can be recycled. But in the reality, no recycling company anywhere is mandated by law to recycle what you put in the blue bin. I think it very much falls into the category of helping corporations reassure us about things we should not be reassured about. So a very real moment for that yeah. I related to. Because we have these separation bins in our apartment. You know, you pull out and you yeah. put the plastic and carbon on this side and whatever, and then you take and you don't know what happens to it. Right. My mom was from Louisiana. She's like, what are you guys doing? Like, why do you have things on different seats? Like, she didn't get it. Yeah. So the stats are staggering. Less than 6% of plastic waste is recycled in the U.S. And you point out that putting stuff in recycle bins doesn't mean that it gets recycled. So what is going on? Mom is right. 
Your, your mom is not know. wrong. Yeah. It's, so one of the things that I, I certainly didn't know about in hosting this show, you know, the, the take, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a positive, uh, optimistic take on climate change solutions rather than the doom and gloom stuff. That said, one of the big challenges with especially plastic recycling, recycling in general, the difference between what's municipally recyclable, meaning what you can actually toss in the garbage that's collected at home from the, the town or the city, is different than um, what companies say things are recyclable, meaning a lot of companies will say, okay, this toothpaste tube or this this pen is technically recyclable, but it's not because the cost of recycling takes more money than what you yield back from it, unlike a lot of the cans and bottles that actually do get recycled. Um, so one of the one of the problems there is Wait, a, say that part again. So essentially companies will pay to recycle X percent of their product, right? They'll pay more money than it costs, meaning more money than they get back in the plastic recycling, just to say that their product is recyclable. But in practice, it is not municipally recyclable, meaning you can't just toss it in the recycling bin in your town or your city and have it get recycled. So what happens when we toss it in our recycling bin? Ends up in the landfill. So the challenge here is understanding what is municipally recyclable, what can be practically recycled, and what's just thrown away. And that thrown away component is a huge chunk of plastic. And that's, I think, what a lot of advocates are hoping that businesses will change, yeah. is how we package things. It's like a massive scandal. Huge it's scandal. It's a huge they scandal. They have to label it differently. Do, do you recycle? Do you separate, I should say? Yeah, you recycle. Yeah. But I'm yeah. saying if you're yes. putting your toothpaste tube in the recycling and it's not actually getting recycled. Yeah. I mean, it, the, I also would think the concern would be people think, well, it's not worth it. I'm not going to recycle at all. There's there's an, uh, a point in that episode, that first episode, where I tried to recycle Taco Bell hot sauce I packets. That, yeah. <laughs> and literally what you have to do, at least in this pilot program, is you collect all your packets. You scan a QR code. You uh, log into a thing online. You print out a mailing label. Then you find a box. You put the Taco Bell sauce packets oh in God. a box. Put the mailing label on it. Go to the post office and mail it off. It's like I sort of joke, like you're lazy if you don't do that. But who is practically going to do that, right? Yeah. That is also, that what it means to be? Uses that's energy. right. The carbon that comes out of that. So I think the the point in all of this, because it really isn't a forward leaning, optimistic show, is what can advocates and companies do together to change the nature of that package? Well, that's the thing is I was asking you, do you separate? Do you, you separate? Uh, so we only have one, two bins, trash and recycling. So not only do I separate, I go down to the recycling and I take out of the, I put the yeah. glass and the plastic yeah. and the paper. Yeah. And, and it's, it's gross. So and I, I do, do it, it and now you're telling me so it's So we all do it. it. Is it worth it? You, look, to be clear, yeah, look, we live in, in New York City, which has a yeah. wonderful, fantastic recycling program. Yes. Okay, uh, good. So if you, if you live in a place that doesn't have that type of a program, I mean, you know, the idea that it's somebody else's problem, this is something you can do with your local city council, your mayor office, your All school. Right. Those, are, those are good things that can be done. But the larger issue is the types of plastics, even when you see that logo yeah. at the bottom of a <laughs> container, it doesn't mean that it's recyclable practically. Yeah. It just shows you the type of plastic that it is. Interesting that you wore green today. Come back so, when you're uh, host of The Daily Show. We, got, we no, have to recycle uh, guests now, so we got to go. You're done. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. See you later. <laughs> you are, are you up for host? Uh, yeah, yes. I'm guest Good. hosting the week of March 13th. Tune in. And, Can't uh, wait you know, for our guest appearance on the program, Cal yeah. Penn. Thank you. Thank you you, gotta, you have Thank to recycle. You. Pay back. That's, That's right. Fair. Are you, you really much. trying to get onto The Daily Show right now? I appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Be sure to, to watch Getting Warmer with Cal Penn on Wednesday, streaming on Bloomberg Channel and Bloomberg.com. Our thanks again to Cal Penn. Up next, we want to go back to Diane Gallagher live on a boat where they're searching for spy balloon debris. Stand by for that.
Beyonce has done it, everybody. We were all here to see it, and you were, too. You were part of this. She now holds the all-time record for the most Grammy wins. So we can finally end the GOAT debate. It's done now, all right? Who's the GOAT? It's Beyonce. It's done. It's not LeBron. It's not Jordan. It's not Tom Brady. It's not Messi. It's Beyonce, okay? It's done. It's officially done. Okay, so, but one thing, one thing that Beyonce can't do, and that is defy what? traffic. Because <laughs> she was stuck in traffic. Beyonce etching her name in the record books, winning her 32nd Grammy. Here is that very special moment. Look. As we are witnessing history tonight. Breaking the record for the most Grammy wins of all time. Be upstanding and show your respect. It's Renaissance. Beyonce. Thank you so much. I'm trying not to be too emotional. And I'm trying to just receive this night. So Beyonce, I hate to bring up the next. Look, she she defied you know everything, but we're bringing up the negative because she didn't take home the album of the year. I'm sure Beyonce is okay with that. That award went to Harry Styles for his album, Harry's House. In fact, look at Lizzo's face. What'd you say? Lizzo's face. <laughs> <laughs> with all her wins, Beyonce has never won that category. Okay, so joining us now from uh, talk about this night in entertainment is entertainment journalist Shagun Oduolo. Thank you for joining. Thank you for joining. Thank you for Appreciate having me. It's Amazing. She was like, look at Lizzo's face. No, the, look at the whole award show. Are we, do we want to do we want to be honest or do we want to be like honest? Uh, come on. Okay, so I will be I first of all, whoever the sound engineer was for that show, fire, fire them. Why? The sound was bad. You thought? Like listening to it on your TV, people came out garbled. And if I'm gonna if I'm gonna watch a music award show, at least let the music be clear. Let me hear the artist. But I it. I, I, it didn't sound good. The Grammys have, like, they got some explaining to do. Like, to quote Bonnie Raitt, like, let's give them something to talk about. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bonnie Raitt is mm -hmm. one of my all-time favorites. I was right. so happy. She was shocked. But I, that, look, I, love, yeah. I love her. I'm a fan of hers. Like I said, I use her song in my opening. Turn down the lights. Look, turn down the bass. Song of the year. I would challenge anyone, did you hear the song? No. Okay, and that's my point. But, but she's the only one in the category who's the only songwriter. So yeah. for that in itself, I give her the award, and it was that was this was fan. This is the in memoriam. Was her performing in the in memoriam. In the in the in memoriam. Okay. So I didn't have problem with that, but Beyonce not winning album of the year. Why? So okay. So by the way, hold on. Beyonce okay. had a god. I love that she had. You know when you say she caught the spirit mm -hmm. in the beginning of her speech, she's like, "Thank you, God," and she paused, which I thought was an amazing moment. I don't know if many people. She's like, no. She's that. she she is a spiritual person. Like when Lizzo went up there and thanked her or when Lizzo went up there and won the award, she thanked Beyonce for when Beyonce sang right. gospel and how it spoke to Lizzo. My issue with what happened at the Grammys is when the best of the best get on stage for their awards in their moment and thank her and thank Beyonce, there's no way you cannot tell me it's not album of the year. That dance album redefined and brought back a genre that had been gone. Well, electronic. E electronic, dance, disco, the LGBTQ plus community that she thanked for creating it. She said for... Inventing for the inventing genre. the yeah. genre. And if you don't want to give it to Beyonce, let's remove the fact that I am black, that you are black, and we're talking about Beyonce. Bad Bunny's album? Bad Bunny was the biggest artist of 2022. You can't tell me Harry Styles' album is better. 
But what I loved about what Harry said when he got up there was, this doesn't, this, this doesn't happen to me, 100% honest. Shouldn't have happened to him, right? Shouldn't have happened to him. But when you think about it, they've been snubbing Beyonce for so long. What, and he also said, art. You can't really judge art. And when they do this and they say that this album is better, I want everyone to go and read an article in Variety where, they're, where they interview Grammy voters. And one voter, voter number four, who luckily gets to remain anonymous, said, I didn't listen to all the music mm -hmm. and I'm not going to vote for Beyonce because every time she does something, it is too portentous. And he used the word portentous, which by definition means um, too solemn or overly, like overly in love with themselves whenever she drops an album. And if you're one of the voters and you're going to go on the record and say you're not going to vote for someone because you really don't like them, then it makes that whole thing a travesty mockery. And isn't that Beyonce's whole point with her past albums is about, you know, especially women feeling self-worth and Absolutely. feeling and what they're conditioned and how they've grown up to what she is and now where she realizes she is? Yeah, she, listen, they, she's the queen for a reason. And the reason that she's a queen is she inspires music, as Trevor Noah said, who did a fantastic job trying to vamp as much as he could <laughs> with, you know, people showing up late for traffic. Okay, but come on. All right, so listen, we, th it is our jobs to sort of <laughs> criticize and analyze, but yes. I will speak for Beyonce because she is a class act. Every mm -hmm. time this happens and people are like, Beyonce should have won, she's always very classy about it and congratulates Harry Styles, and right. I'm sure she would say, Harry, congratulations. Yes, blah, the blah, queen blah, blah, rises blah. above. Not, yeah. The queen rises above, yeah. even if the Grammys took the low road. She knows. Yeah. Everybody knows. Yeah, everybody knows. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. <laughs> Thank you, Shagoon. You won't break my song. <laughs> She knows. She knows what happened. Thank you. We'll let him <laughs> sing us you. off. <laughs> no, no, we won't. <laughs> we appreciate you joining us. Have a great day, everyone. CNN Newsroom starts after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.